Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network Gender Studies series with me, Ivan Simic. Thanks for downloading this edition of the program, and I do hope you enjoy it. The Great Depression was one of the most significant events in the 20th century history. It brought profound changes, not just... Hello, welcome to the New Books Network Gender Studies series with me, Ivan Simic. Thanks for downloading this edition of the program, and I do hope you enjoy it. The Great Depression was one of the most significant events in the 20th century history. It brought profound changes, not just in the economy of the world, but also to the political, social, and institutional life of the United States. My guest today has explored how all these changes reflected gender, race, and sexuality. Her recent book, published by the Cornell University Press, Forgotten Men and Fallen Women, The Cultural Politics of New Deal Narratives, tackles these issues in the interwar period. Holly Allen received an MA and PhD in American Studies from Yale University. She is currently an assistant professor at Millbury College, teaching courses on U.S. cultural history and cultural studies, political culture and theories of citizenship, women's and gender studies, the history of sexuality, and digital history. Holly Allen, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Instead of starting uh, about the content of the book, we can start with a really troubling story from Washington in June 1932, when approximately 20,000 jobless veterans gathered in Washington to protest. It ended ugly. Could you please tell us what happened there, and then we'll relate it to the analysis of the main themes of the book. Well, one of the reasons I start with the bonus march of 1932 is that it became an importantly retold story, a story that became something, you know, an apocryphal kind of narrative, one that people retold over and over again. And one of the things that I'm interested in my in my book is thinking about the way that these kinds of narratives enter the the political discourse of the era and the way in which those narratives were also gendered narratives. So how emotionally impactful gendered narratives became integral to the reformulation of the American political landscape during a period of significant change. And the bonus march was an interesting gathering. It was a group of veterans from all across the country, but um, notably it began in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, although that's why I chose it. Uh, but it was um, veterans of the First World War who, like many other Americans at the time, were unemployed. Uh, but these unemployed people had um, had been promised uh, deferred compensation for their military service during World War One, and what they were asking for was early payment of that deferred compensation, which wasn't due until sometime in the 1940s. Um, but they thought that since they were in such dire straits that it, and given their history of service, 
that they should be able to call upon the Congress to pass legislation authorizing early payment of what was called the bonus. So there was legislation before Congress in the spring of 1932 um, called the Patman Bonus Bill, named after uh, Senator Wright Patman. I believe he was from Texas. And um, the purpose of this would be to give these people a little bit of relief to which they felt entitled as veterans. Uh, but, but what happened instead is that they came in waves and congregated in Washington in um homeless settlements in shanty towns and um interestingly they engaged in a lot of um of theater and politics to um emphasize their cause so they would engage in things like sleep-ins on the uh on the uh lawn of congress and that kind of thing just to get more visibility to their cause. So they were engaged in a kind of spectacle politics. Um, and in doing so, we're really emphasizing their status as men of virtue, men of virtue who were nevertheless closed out of the what they understood to be the promises of citizenship in a democracy, in an American democracy. So there was a lot of information. And then, you know, that became that, you know, the media picked up on that spectacle. Um, it did its own kinds of interpretation of the gendered themes inherent in the bonus march and its many, um, many activities. And it also um, became great spectacle when President Herbert Hoover made the decision to uh to bring down the force of the federal government um, on the um, settlements, and rather than, you know, meet their demands, uh, uh, raise their settlements and uh, put, you know, sick General MacArthur and whippet tanks and tear gas on the veterans who were encamped in Washington and their families, which became the source of many more sensational narratives. So I'm interested in the kind of sensational narrative that is represented by the bonus march, which actually um, really what I'm interested in is the relationship between lived experience um, of people, you know, flesh and blood citizens of the United States, um, their experiences of the Depression, the ways in which they themselves interpreted those experiences, um, how those experiences experiences got taken up into a larger public discourse and sensationalized to affect certain political outcomes. It's interesting that journalists and veterans themselves saw that as an assault on their rights as veterans, but also as family men. Mm -hmm. uh, could you focus a little bit more on that family men component yeah. and how it related to the Great Depression? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that was interesting about the bonus march is that it was largely um, uh, an encampment of men. The marchers were predominantly men. Most of them were single men. And a lot of what I'm interested in in my project is the relationship between homosociality and heterosociality and the and or between fraternity and familyhood as kinship models for the nation. And. What was interesting about the bonus mark is that bonus march is that it had both of those components. This was a fraternal group of protesters, but they also very, um, very 
carefully projected their status as family men in order to garner political legitimacy. So there were actually relatively few families in the bonus settlements that were um, that were attacked by the government. But those stories of families, of wives and children who were um, subject to, who were exposed to tear gas or who were um, chased down by whippet tanks, those stories became really apocryphal, became central to the um, legend of the bonus march. And what that suggests, I think, what, what's interesting there and interesting in so many stories about gender in the Great Depression is the way in which it wants to preserve and propagate and make political capital out of the figure of the family man, the breadwinner, the provider, and um, and this figure of the of the um, dis the alienated or disaffected breadwinner um, or family man, family protector. Um, I think becomes symbolic of the crisis of political culture in the Great Depression, and a lot of different parties to the contest over what will happen in the political process, really latch onto this figure of the of the unemployed provider, the provider who can't do his job as a, as a citizen of American democracy. And that job is a gender job of providership and protection of those who are dependent upon him. And so the ultimate crisis of, of American citizenship is when men as providers can't provide for their children. And that becomes very focal to the sensational stories that come out of the bonus march. But it's also evident across the um, landscape of American political culture and political discourse during the Great Depression. So I guess that uh, we could read about the descriptions in the newspapers that were very gendered about female children uh, attacked men. I was wondering to what extent were these narratives internalized by the protesters themselves? Oh, I think they had a lot to do with it. Um, a lot of the re research that I did was based on stories told initially by leaders of the bonus march themselves. So there was a figure named Albert Meisel, M-E-I-S-E-L, and he wrote one of the earliest narratives of the bonus march. He was a marcher himself, and, and he really emphasized the role that he and his comrades in this protest um, felt obligated to discharge as, as, as family providers and the frustration that they felt that their ability to meet that that expectation of American citizenship was not being met. And I see that as, you know, they, they had a very important role in, in crafting the narrative. And also not just a narrative, but also visual imagery. So if you look at the visual record of the bonus march, disproportionately represented are images of children um, because the protesters um, very strategically deployed children among their ranks to show that this was a crisis of the American family. Um, even though there were relatively few children, they are, they loom very large in the visual record of the bonus march. Because bonus marchers at some level wanted to downplay the possible threat that they posed as a, as a group of men single men, men who were rootless, who, who had no settlement, um, and wanted to emphasize that they were, you know, sort of wanted to 
um, invest their claims to citizenship in their status as family men, as protectors. So those among them who brought children were called upon to um, enlist their children in the visual politics of the of the bonus movement. Um, so children would be would be featured or homes that the, the the shanties where women were out in the yard hanging laundry, that kind of image was was frequently propagated within the bonus demonstration itself in order to really um, assert the respectability and um, entitlement of these marchers um, to a purchase on American democracy, on American the American dream. I was then wondering, since it all leads to 1929 and the start of the Great Depression afterwards, can we make some broad comparisons of how 1929 and the years after affected gender and gender norms? And can we make some broad comparisons uh, before 1929 and after 1929? Yeah, well, one of the, a lot had been changing, um, uh, at least the early 20th century in the United States, from 1900 onward, even earlier, you know, more, there was a steady increase in the number of women in the workforce, um, particularly having to do with, in the United States, the influx of immigrants and the rise of industry, um, of, of um, sort of the second wave of American immigration, and the um, and the growth of, of the assembly line, things like that, that brought more women, particularly working class women, into the workforce, particularly during their single years prior to marriage. But a lot of working class women increasingly stayed in the workforce, and then middle class women at the same time, white middle class women had been um, uh, developing, making forays into particularly gender-specific careers like social work and teaching and nursing and things like that. But there was a lot of, I think, um, there had been a gradual shift towards women's increasing workforce participation. And I would say that the Great Depression really um, led to a kind of backlash against those changes. Um, it because there were so many men out of work. One of the things that I argue, a central premise of my book, is that because the problems of the Depression themselves, the economic problems of the Depression, were really quite difficult to resolve, a lot of people engaged in scapegoating, and particularly gendered scapegoating, in order to feel a more immediate sense of accomplishment, a more immediate sense of having done something. So because so many of the economic problems of the Great Depression um, were really global in scale, um, the, you know, the practice of scapegoating women, of saying we have to get these women out of the workforce was um, an emotionally satisfying and tangible way of trying to act on a pressing problem that many Americans felt. And I think that, so it was, um, I think there had been a build-up to this point where um, people were conscious of women's increasing public um, presence in public life and in the workforce. And the Great Depression really created an opportunity for there to be a kind of referendum on that change that was taking place.
So one of the key issues was women's employment. And it seems to me that throughout the book you demonstrated that the views of female employment were very correlated with race, uh, with different notions for white women working and for black women working. Could you give us some more details about that? Yeah. Well, it was definitely a double standard, a double-double standard. (laughs) Uh, so, So, you know, there was a lot of concern about white women in the workforce and I talk a lot, and one of my favorite parts of the project, one of the things I enjoyed doing the most was looking at woman blaming and how woman blaming became, um, and, and the resulting shifts in policy that led to women being ousted from public sector employment and other kinds of employment in the Great Depression, largely applied to white women, that it was never intended to affect black women. But the racial the, the racial and gender politics of New Deal policy are complicated as well by the nature of Democratic Party politics in the 1930s, because the 1930s brought more African Americans into the Democratic Party, right? They had been Republican, those who had 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 been able to um, be politically active had been uh, fairly devoted to the Republican Party until the election of Roosevelt. After that, um, there was a major shift in African-American partisanship to the Democratic Party. Um, so on the one hand, the Democratic Party was accountable to African-Americans and espoused a kind of liberal civil civil rights um, uh, position on employment matters and access to um, to welfare measures. But on the other hand, the Democratic, a huge um, base of the Democratic Party were Southern whites. And so Southern whites, there were really different New Deals for different parts of the country, and particularly in the South. Um, Southern Democrats who were very powerful throughout the nation, you know, in, in shaping democratic policy, really resisted the idea that the gendered restrictions of the New Deal should apply to African American women. And they, in particular, wanted to exclude African American women from access to um, unemployment relief, because unemployment relief often paid better than the kinds of jobs in agriculture and domestic service that both African-American men and African-American women had access to. So for African-Americans, men and women alike, the New Deal created, transformed the way they thought about democratic politics and about their relationship to the government. But um, that sense of idealism and hope was um, often uh, dashed by the on-the-ground practice of New Deal policy implementation throughout the southern United States. And also, so I guess it meant something different for blacks and whites. The difference that it meant was partly due to the fact that the New Deal, while it was a national it was a national policy framework, was implemented differently depending on where you were in the United States. So in many parts of the United States, racism, racism against African-Americans, racism against Mexican-Americans and other groups, um, shaped the 
implementation of policy in ways that fell particularly um, severely on women of color. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the main arguments of the book seems to me was that during the Depression and the World War II, gender, racial, and sexual scapegoating was crucial in mobilizing popular support and in construction of different identities. Yeah. Uh, so could you please elaborate more on this and provide the listeners with some examples? Right. So a lot of, there have been a lot, you know, the, new, the, the, the interwar years in the United States were a period of dramatic political transformation, obviously, and that extended into World War II. And uh, so it's been a subject of a great deal of study by feminist historians, by labor historians, by policy historians. And there have been a lot of different interpretations of what I'm trying to add to the mix in looking at these scapegoating practices is thinking about, like, you know, uh, there are, there is a, a bunch of, of political historians who want to say that a lot of what was discriminatory and scapegoating about, well, not even scapegoating, what was discriminatory about the New Deal had to do with its differential implementation at different levels of government. And I think that is true, um, that, uh, that while, while there might be one set, you know, while, while the, the ideas behind New Deal policy coming from the national government were more deeply liberal in their conception, um, they were not practiced as such in various localities, particularly in the South and Southwest, and to some extent in the West as well. But I, I want to say it's not as simple as that. You can't let the federal government off the hook for what is deeply discriminatory about New Deal policy. Because what I want to argue, I want to sort of take it back and do more of an ideological analysis, but Really, what I want to do is a narrative analysis of what's going on with the New Deal. So rather than say it has to do with the sort of um, dissonance between different institutional apparatuses of government at that time, I want to say, no, there is an ideological component. There is a deliberate collusion on the part of the federal government in gender scapegoating, racial scapegoating, et cetera, because um, the government is trying to use any and all resources at its disposal to legitimize its, its leadership claims, right? And so in order to um, maintain power and build the power of the federal government, particularly at a time when a lot that is residual in the nature of American political establishment is being cast aside, um, they have to draw on longstanding prejudices in order to sort of garb new ideas in old and familiar and palatable packages. So they might have reactionary gender politics to go along with, you know, something that's much more novel and potentially threatening to the general public. So I, I think that the, I think the federal government is, is very much complicit in and, and consents to the, um, practice of gender scapegoating, of race scapegoating, um, in order to um, really enlist broad support for what might otherwise seem to be a threatening expansion of state power. I see. And a significant part of the book is devoted exactly to 
those, let's say, gender outlaws, those who dare to challenge existing gender norms. So let's see first how unemployment and employment came to define who was a gender outlaw and who were gender and sexual outsiders in this context. Uh huh. Um, so in the Great Depression, uh, you know, there's there had long been um, a group of there, migrant labor is something that continues to be an important part of the U.S. economy. As we know, there's a lot of focus on migration today, but migrant workers were a huge part of the um, of the labor force in the 1930s and earlier than the 1930s. And so single transient men, men who were migratory, um, became were sort of ready scapegoats during the Great Depression. So that was one group of outlaws, particularly during a time when so much emphasis was placed on um, a figure of on the on the idea of the male-headed household as as a unit of civic identity. The white male-headed household as a unit of civic identity was crucial to um, the American political culture during the 1930s and into the 1940s, partly because... That would be an imagined white breadwinner, right? As imagined what? An imagined white breadwinner. Right, yes, yeah. So this was this was an important figure. This is the figure that is um, really associated with uh, Roosevelt rhetoric of the forgotten man, which then gets very widely circulated. This figure of the forgotten man is a white male breadwinner who is entitled to um, to meet his family's needs, and it is and and is the political crisis and the economic crisis has to do with his failure to do so. So we have to meet the needs of the white male breadwinner, um, and um, and that. You know, again, because so much is changing since this is such a politically transformative and uh, time in American life, this is a crisis. And some people say a constitutional crisis. A lot is going on. A lot of things that people had taken for granted, truisms about the nature of citizenship, about the nature of government, were all being upended in the Great Depression and in the New Deal response to the Great Depression. And so partly in order to alleviate fears about what was so transformative, the figure of the white male breadwinner became a kind of reassuring symbol that not so much was really changing after all, um, that there was, that continuity was the overriding feature of what was transformative about the New Deal, because ultimately all these big changes that were taking place um, were in order to secure the future of the white male breadwinner and his heteronormative or heterosexual family unit, right? And so anyone who stood on the outside of that became easy fodder for scapegoating. Um, migratory men who were of longstanding um, part of the labor force um, became highly visible, um, a, a group that had been scapegoated in the progressive era, prostitutes, um, became sort of, there was a kind of um, revival of uh, vice crusades and, and fears of prostitution. And so um, fallen women <laughs> uh, became a kind of figure for women who deviated from their role as dependents. Women who ventured into public life and 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 
um, got jobs or or um, sold their bodies for set for money. You know, that was the, the the prostitute became one of the scapegoated symbols or, or for women in the workplace. Um, and, so could and it so, be also a symbol? Uh, could it be also be a symbol of men losing power over these women? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. When women were, you know, there was a lot of concern about fam- about the demoralization of men, the breakdown of the family when men were no longer able to provide, the social collapse that would ensue when young, particularly male youth, were no longer um, uh, being brought up properly by their breadwinning fathers. There was a lot of concern about the breakdown of the family as a result of the breakdown of male white male providership. Again, none of this really applied to the black family. It wasn't or or other families of color. There was no concern about there the, the concern was all about preserving the white male headed family unit. Um, and since you you know you work in a European context I one of the things that interests me is the relationship that what is going on in terms of the crisis of male authority in the home in the United States context has to do with the Frankfurt School and concerns about the relationship that um, the breakdown of male family headship in places like Germany led, had to the rise of fascism, according to Frankfurt scholars at the time. Are you familiar with that? The relationship between the weakness of the family unit and the rise of fascism in some social science work um, in the interwar years? In no, not really. Uh, when it comes to prostitution, I was uh, mostly researching it in the Soviet context and in Yugoslav context and then Stalinist approaches to prostitution and uh, how prostitution was explained in a socialist state as in a socialist context, prostitution was supposed to disappear after the socialist revolution, but since obviously didn't disappear, they had to find some explanations about that. So it, it was a completely different story in different contexts. Uh-huh. Uh, but here it seems that it really plays with masculinity and imagined manhood. So can we say that it's again related to unemployment and can we make some uh, um, um, approximation of how widespread was this moral panic about uh, about prostitution? Well, the moral panic about prostitution was not as widespread in my mind as the moral panic about male homosexuality. I think there was an even greater panic about young, about impressionable youth. Um, being led astray by older, predatory migrant men. Um, that, I would say, was the even more germ- They were related, though. Prostitutes and... Um, and, and so I, I have a chapter of the book that looks at woman blaming and, and identifies different figures, the nagging wife, um, the... Um, wage-earning woman who emasculates her husband, the emasculating wife. <laughs> there are all these mm-hmm. figures who became very significant. But the prostitute was another be- another figure of misbehaving womanhood. Um, but she was also closely aligned with the impressionable youth as a sexual and gender outlaw um, who escaped family bounds. Um, in the in the 1930s, so there was a kind of moral panic about um, that. I think a connected moral panic about prostitutes and transient youth. 
those two groups were lumped together as evidence that the family had, unit had broken down to such an extent that, um, that, the, that the successor generation was in great peril, right? There would be no future upstanding citizens to raise their families and have healthy out offspring, you know, who would become, you know, the future of the nation, right? So how are uh, uh, these economic hardships and the New Deal affected homophobia and anti-homosexual campaigns uh-huh. in the United States? I would say dramatically. I think a lot of concern, It you know, there was concern about uh, fortifying the, fam- the white male household um, and fortifying it against the scourges of male homosexuality, of transiency, um, and because there is a longer, there's, I don't know if you've ever looked at the work of people like George Chauncey, who is an amazing historian of sexuality in the United States, but there had long been what George Chauncey calls um, a male bachelor subculture, um, pop people by um, tra- migrant workers and urban urban men, you know, un, unmarried men. Um, and it was looming larger and larger as more and more Americans were moving into urban centers, right? So there were more unattached people, um, men and women, uh, living in cities, engaging in um, all kinds of promiscuous sociality um, outside of family ties. And and so there was part of this is a cumulative anxiety about urbanization and its effect on social relationships, the anonymity that urbanization affords. But um, but I but I think that what happens is that that set of concerns about about an increasingly atomized urban dwelling American population collides with the anxieties of the Great Depression which center on the white male household and um, results in an even greater panic about, um, about homosexuality, particularly male intergenerational homosexuality, um, and, and a fear that, um, that uh, there would be all sorts of political consequences because the young male um, the, the adolescent youth of the nation were not going to make it to respectable, settled, heteronormative adulthood. Um, so we have two dimensions here. First, uh, uh, that these sexual anxieties were part of the public discourse, that they enter civic narratives. And it seems to me that they also, uh, uh, that these narratives shaped federal policy on the other level. Yeah. So could you elaborate more on that? On right. That? Well, so what I'm interested in is thinking about how, you know, how does, how, how do, how do states accrue power to themselves? How does, in a period of tremendous political transformation, what resources does the New Deal state deploy in order to fortify its leadership claims against a potentially vicious and, um, and um, uh, uh, apprehensive public, right? Because new things are happening. The government is entering into people's lives in ways it had never had before. Um, and so, how does the how how do these residual gender concepts 
both good and bad residual gender scapegoats like the like the um, the uh, homosexual the predatory um, wolf who takes advantage of young men on the road um, or the prostitute how does these figures get deployed and also how do more reassuring images of white male providership get deployed in order to make emergent state policy more palatable, right? And I think part of what happens is there is this, you know, I, I, I use a little bit of hegemony theory here to think about how the um, how the relationship of residual and emergent, right? But how um, existing stories, like the story of the bonus march, um, get brought into public discourse, how they become popularized and sensationalized, and then how they become, how, how the government creates an official version of those. So I'm interested in that dialectical relationship between official narratives, official gendered narratives, which also shape policy, and popular gendered narratives that speak to broad-seated fears about um, social unrest um, and that draw on long-standing figures of, of gender anxiety like the prostitute or, 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 or the um, predatory um, homosexual, sort of old inveterate transient who, who, who takes advantage of young men. Does that make so sense? Just, and then how oh, those absolutely. in turn shape policies like or and programs like the federal transient program or the Federal Emergency Relief Administration or the um, the women's program or project within the Works Progress Administration. Those kinds of policies reflect that dialogue dialectical exchange between popular sensationalized narrative and um, official rhetoric and, and practice. Um, and the reason, another thing that informs my interest in this is an effort to then think about how um, to apply affect theory a little bit to thinking about political power um, in the New Deal era. How are, how, how does in its efforts to make itself palatable, its emergent, um, expansive New Deal state power palatable to a broad public, how does the government use affectively charged narratives of gender to um, to persuade and and reassure citizens that that the government has their best interests at heart. So it seems to me that the notions of citizenships uh, of citizenship were crucial here, and that they were expanded with the New Deal. Uh, how it interacted with gender and sexual dimension? Well. Um, uh, one of the early in my graduate education, I read the work of Eve Sedgwick, and I remember reading one of her early works, Between Men, about English literature and male homosexual desire. And she talks about the very different political um, intuitions that come to us from the sexual realm. That if we really want to understand political power, we have to think about its relationship to other registers of power. And um, particularly for those of us, I'm an interdisciplinary historian. I'm, I've been, you know, my training is in American studies. I've always been interested in the politics and power of representation and its re relationship to state power. But representation often um, operates along different kinds of power registers, like gender, like sexuality. So I, I want to plot the relationship between sexual power and political power 
and between sexual representation and conceptions of the nation state. Um, and likewise with gender, I want to look at how gendered power within sort of the micropolitics of, of the domestic space um, translate into national policy and, and how those things go back and forth because I'm interested in, um, in that, in that dialectic that the government is taking stories about domesticity, stories about down and out forgotten men. And there's a very, you know, I talk about civic genres, genres of civic storytelling. There are these narratives that focus on the domestic scene of the nagging wife and her dispossessed, down and out, beleaguered husband. Um, and they get retold over and over again, not only within the popular press, but also by the government. So how does that, how do the sort of gender dynamics of that exchange between a, a so-called nagging wife and her, um, you know, and her down and out husband um, then become sort of shape the terms of civic obligation and entitlement at the federal level? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, can we then move to uh, the popular culture and how, uh, for example, all these changes in gender norms, uh, the ideas about forgotten men and fallen women, nagging wife, how it reflected popular films and theater yeah. at that time. See, I think I have to do a whole other book about that. <laughs> um, really, I want to do, I've actually written more extensively about women blaming films in the 1930s, and I, I want to I, I do a project that's just about our culture, because I think I think that's a hard shift in some of my chapters between I be, always begin with the popular register and then I go to politics and policy. And I think that can be less interesting to people. But um, but I am interested in precisely how those things connect to each other. Um, and I, I what I find in popular culture is the repetition of particular so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to say they exactly reflected. There's always a debate about the relationship of politics to popular culture. Is, is pop, you know, does popular culture reflect what's going on politically? Does popular culture shape what's going on politically? And obviously, I would want to say it both reflects and shapes what's going on politically. And it, it, it's popular because it resonates with, with, with people's lived experience at some level. So, um, so I think that popular, you know, we can look at um, evidence from popular culture during the Great Depression to really show the depth of or the, I guess, the pervasiveness of the preoccupation with particular gender stereotypes in this period, such as the nagging wife or um, the impressionable youth who gets taken taken advantage of by a male sexual predator or um, the husband or breadwinner who takes his wife in hand. You know, these figures are pervasive throughout popular culture. And um, and so it just shows their potency. I think popular culture can be um, sort of more evidence of the potency and breadth of these kinds of representations. And um and I'm interested in thinking of popular culture as a third realm of discourse, I guess, as a third partner to the conversation about how gender and politics intersect, gender, race, sexuality, and politics intersect in the Great Depression and in World War II. 
Um, so I think people's ideas get influenced by what, what's happening in popular culture, um, what they're seeing on, on screen or listening to on the radio or reading in the advice columns. But I also think the existence of those representations in those spaces is a measure of how broadly, how, you know, a broad-based popular concern. Does that make sense? So, oh, Absolutely. And I'm actually glad that... Uh this uh, I planned as the last question. But before we end, I actually wanted to ask you something that is not always pleasant for us historians. So uh, what can we learn regarding the contemporary crisis? What can we learn about scapegoating, gender, sexuality, and contemporary American narratives? Can we make some parallels? Yeah. Well, I think these questions about the relationship of, you know, the media culture has changed profoundly in the present day. But I personally, and particularly in the U.S. context presently, um, and I'm teaching right now a course on media and politics, um, and so I'm interested in the fact that we have, on the one hand, a fairly hyper-masculine candidate in Donald Trump, and we have a, a, a female candidate in Hillary Clinton who has been subject to a great deal of misogynistic representation. And I think a lot of her unfavor I would argue, a lot of her unfavorability um, has to do with her gender. And so I'm interested in thinking about, you know, thinking through the um, the, I, the relationship of um, ge of gender scapegoating and expectations about male leadership um, in the public sphere sphere that are residual and that are also evident in the current electoral campaign in the United States. But I also think this idea of family is really important when we think about things like race politics in the United States. If you look at conservative ideologies of race in contemporary America, uh, the, 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 there's a lot, there has, and of course historically as well, the pathologization of the black family and wanting to say that we need to fix the problem of racial inequity in the United States by rectifying failed families. Right. Which is to put the blame in entirely the wrong place, if you ask me. <laughs> but, this, but this idea that that if we have strong families, which is very, I think, integral to Republican U.S. Republican ideology, um, then we have a strong nation and we want patriarchal leaders who can lead the, the national family. You know, that all works together, and it goes with the politics of racial exclusion as well, because I've always made the argument that um, that the family is a kind of, you know, is racially, but symbolically speaking, um, the family as metaphor in a U.S. context is racially endogamous, right? It, 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 the family is a kind of racialized um, unit. Um, we still, you know, mixed families exist, but they're not symbolically um, central in the, to the nation, to the imagination of the nation in the way that, um, that they might, you know, they might be acceptable in everyday life and might be evident in popular culture. But um, so I have some concern about, you know, I, I definitely am concerned about the, the rhetoric of family and it's, and it's both its gender and its racial, um, the, the, the gender and racial scapegoating that I think continue to um, and the uh, to continue to animate 
U.S. public discourse around families, particularly Republican discourse around families, and then also um, the extent to which emphasizing families obscures other kinds of inequities, um, like it can, you know, like um, severe racial discrimination, but also economic discrimination in the United States. So I think the family becomes it, it obscures a great deal, and it allows, but it and it and it it's a very I don't know. It's very problematic um, on a number of levels, um, and I think it holds people like Hillary Clinton back. Um, I, and um, yeah, but it's a you know what's going on in the United States politically right now is just so outrageous and <laughs> incomprehensible. But it has to do with a changed media landscape too. It's very different from what it was in the mid 20th century. Okay, this is an excellent ending, and I'm actually glad that we made these parallels. Holly Allen, thank you very much indeed for this interview. Thank you.